0: All right, good morning. How are you all? Um, I don't know why I asked that question, but it's just a habit. <laughs> I do genuinely care, though. Um, good to see you all this morning, and uh, great to be here on this lovely day, this amazing weekend. Hats off to you for being here indoors when you could be outside. Um, my name is Scott McTaggart. For those of you who don't know me, I'm the pastor of community formation uh, with Artisan Church. And uh, it's my privilege to bring the uh, sermon this morning. Um, We've been going through a series about the Holy Spirit called The Face of the Deep. And we're looking at the person, presence, and power of the Holy Spirit. And first, I just got to say thanks to uh, my brothers Nelson and Lance for just doing such an awesome job of bringing clarity and just so gently bringing clarity. Yeah, this message of clarity around a topic that I think can often have confusion or baggage. And they've done such an awesome job. Really, really appreciate them. And count it as such a privilege to be a part of of such a great team. Um, So uh, what we've been doing and Nelson a couple weeks ago talked about the Holy Spirit as a person. The person of God himself. Last week, Lance talked about the Holy Spirit as God's personal presence and the invitation to be people of the presence. If you guys haven't listened to those, um, the podcast's up on the website. We're working on getting out on iTunes as well so that you can uh, listen to those if you're not here. And today we're talking about the power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, if it's all right with you, I'd just like to jump right into the Bible and uh, not actually jump into it, don't worry. Just opening the pages and getting into the text is what I mean. Acts chapter 1. Let's turn there. And if you have your pew Bible, it is page 758. You can keep your finger open to that. We're going to stay there uh, this morning. Acts chapter 1, verse 3 to 8. It reads... Then they gathered around him and asked him, uh, uh, Where are we? Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Can we pray together? Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this text. Thank you that uh, your Holy Spirit is not just an obscure force or presence, but a person. And uh, we are invited to be in you and uh, work with you as our helper, as our advocate. Thank you that your presence is with us this morning as we go through this text. I pray that you would help me and help us to understand it more clearly. And to receive power, as the text says. God, would you uh, teach us, mold us, form us into who you want us to be? In your name I ask. Amen. Okay, quick little survey here. Um, I wonder, when you think of this phrase, the power of the Holy Spirit, what comes to mind? And I thought it would be fun to actually voice them out loud. Because, like I said, I know there's a lot of uh, mixed reviews around this phrase. So... Can you shout out your, maybe just a quick word or thought, what comes to mind when you think of this phrase, the power of the Holy Spirit? Televangelists. Fire. Fire. Feeling? Healing. Healing Healing and feeling. (laughs) The The church I grew up in. Love. Love. Truth. I guess I don't have to repeat them all. I don't know. <laughs> Ah. Revealing truth. Yeah. The Holy Spirit reveals truth. Yeah. So Anything else, Donald? Yeah, everything, everything. everything. Yeah, everything. People are silencing. It's like, okay, yeah, that feels good. You can start preaching, preacher. <laughs> um, this word power is really interesting. It's the word uh, dunamis, which is uh, the word that we get dynamite from. So this idea of you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you uh, is not just a subtle image of power, but this is an explosive power that Luke is talking about. Luke, the author of Acts, and also the author of the, uh, the gospel by the same name, Luke. I thought it would be helpful to share a bit of my story. Um, I was raised in a non-denominational charismatic church, Uh, Charismatic meaning um, that we not only believed in but pursued the filling of the Spirit so that we could receive the power and the gifts of the Holy Spirit and practice that. Um, It was not uncommon for you to come to a gathering on Sunday uh, and someone would, in the middle of singing worship, come over and talk to one of the pastors, whisper in their ear kind of thing, and you knew there was maybe going to be a prophetic word, and then they would be given the microphone, And go up in front of everyone and give a prophetic word. Sometimes even in tongues. Uh, That's the kind of church I grew up in. And we would wait faithfully because Scripture says if someone is speaking a message in tongues, you're supposed to wait for an interpretation. We would wait for an interpretation. And then someone would come up. And so the flow of the service was very much loose and uh, could go wherever it wanted to. There was uh, fire tunnels. If you don't know what that is, you can talk to me after. Um, healing gatherings, so gatherings where we would specifically come together and pray for people who were sick. Um, Prophetic assemblies. I don't know how familiar you are with the charismatic world, but um, we had uh, special weekends or times, weeks, emphases on when we would gather prophets, known prophets in the area, people that had the gift of prophecy to come in and pray and ask God, about a specific couple or an individual, and then speak that word to them in front of the church, on the stage, with a microphone. Um, And this is the world I grew up in, and like a good charismatic boy, I graduated from high school and went to a charismatic Bible college in uh, Australia, Sydney, Australia. I spent a year there, one of the best years of my life, have fond memories of it. But I remember this one instance where I uh, went to a gathering, and it was called, I think, a Holy Spirit Gathering. So you knew what you're getting into right when you you came to the place. And so I remember showing up, and there were hundreds of people there. And uh, the the preacher was a guest preacher from America, and he was on fire. He was uh, yelling and screaming, and he was obviously heated up and passionate about something. And then he just started calling people out from the congregation up to the front, praying for them, and often uh, putting his hands on them, and they would fall down. And I was skeptical, even as a charismatic, I was skeptical seeing this man, which looked like pushing down people onto the ground. And interestingly enough, that was also the Sunday I chose to wear the brightest, orangest shirt I had ever owned in my wardrobe. And sure enough, in the middle of this this charismatic uh, rant, he points me out and he says, you in the orange shirt. Like, crap. Oh, man, so I go up to the front, and I'm like, what do I do? What do I expect? I was a bit resistant. I didn't want to just go down because he was pushing people, but I, I genuinely wanted to encounter the Holy Spirit. That's why I was there. And so I go up to the front, and he started, sure enough, uh, praying over me and pushing me. I'm like, no. Nope. <laughs> and, uh, and then I played it out of my mind. I'm like, are we going to do this? Everyone else has fallen to the ground, and so I you know, maybe your respect will leave uh, from me, but uh, I decided just to go with it and just fall down I had, I had no feeling of the Holy Spirit's power at the moment I was completely able to stand up at the time, uh, but I chose to fall down like the rest of them, and then I remember lying there on the, the stage I remember this strange detail that my shirt had come up and my belly was showing a little bit so I slowly slowly just covered it up because I wanted, I wanted, you know, people watching to know, I didn't want to throw anyone off of their faith, so I just stayed there. And then I looked up, I could see my feet, and at the end of my feet, my good friend Mark, a uh, New Zealander, who uh, was playing guitar that night, was looking at me, and he kind of looked at me like, what are you going to do now, McTaggart? <laughs> and I remember just like staying there for a while, and then I got up and walked back to my seat, and that was that. And I, I remember thinking during that year that I, I, I longed less and less for these hype experiences, for these human engineered experiences, and more and more I longed for a genuine encounter with God's power. This was not it. Stanley Hauerwas, a brilliant theologian and respected, I think, American theologian, he said this. Yeah, he's American. Why that matters, I don't know. Uh, Stanley Harawas, I have come to think that the challenge confronting Christians is not that we do not believe what we say, though that can be a problem, but that what we say we believe does not seem to make any difference for either the church or the world. And I was going through this struggle in my own story where I wanted it to be true. I wanted God's power to be powerful, not just something I read about in the New Testament, but for Today, And I think what this quote is getting at is our basic fear that God is impotent. That he doesn't have power. That he lacks power for today. That it doesn't matter. I think maybe, I think in this uh, Acts chapter 1 passage, I think um, the early believers maybe had a similar feeling and were wrestling with similar questions. Jesus, after all, their leader, their savior, their rabbi, was tortured and killed. He raised, was raised from the dead and spent some time with them, um, 40 days uh, to be exact. And he leaves. The one who taught them and mentored them, encouraged them, challenged them, he up and leaves. Literally, he goes up. Uh, and the only command he gives them is, don't leave, wait. And they were waiting for nine days between Jesus' ascension and what we know as Pentecost. I wonder what they were thinking in that time. I wonder what was going on in their heads. I wonder if any of them bailed. No, this is too much. I can't can't stay with this. There's something promised, but I don't know what it is. I don't even know if I want to be a part of it. I wonder if there were doubts. Like in the end of each of the gospel accounts, it talks about the doubts that the disciples had about Jesus being the Messiah. I wonder if they thought similar to Harawas, uh, that what we say we believe does not seem to make any difference for either the church or the world. And they're probably, I'm guessing, they had a lot of time, so replaying the words of Jesus. And he said to them, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So they had the sense that Jesus going away was somehow a good thing. And then he says this, that we read this in the passage, Acts 1, 4 to 5. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John, baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Jesus using a common visual to say that what this is going to be like, because they really didn't know what it was going to be like. It's going to be like a baptism. You know how you go under the waters? and you're baptized, this spirit baptism is going to be similar to that. Although it's not going to be with water, it's going to be with my spirit. Um, they didn't do nothing in those nine days. They kept busy by praying, it says. They chose a 12th disciple, which filled some time, maybe like, I don't know, a day. <laughs> uh, and choosing the 12th disciple was important. There's 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus chose 12, and so they thought, let's complete this. Otherwise, it was just a bunch of hurry up and wait. All they could do was wait. Uh, They had a choice. They could, I guess, go from that point. They heard the Great Commission, go make disciples, go into all the world. They could go and start doing that, or they could wait for this power to help them do it. I think most of them were expectant, is the feeling I get from reading the, the Scripture and uh, they waited because they knew something coming was going to be good. I think this is an important word for us, especially in our impatient world where, you know, getting a car to go, if the door doesn't open in like a second, you freak out. And, you know, this, this transmission is going to a satellite in space and coming back to your phone to open the door, essentially. And we, we feel entitled somehow that a door should open in a second. Uh, or maybe it's uh, whatever it is, using your phone to get a, a map somewhere. Uh, we we always uh, struggle with this impatience kind of uh, stuff needs to happen now. And so this idea of waiting, I think, is really important for us. That we wait and pray, find our energy and purpose from the right source. The word in Greek is interesting, perimeno. Wait is perimeno, which means to remain in a place or a state with expectancy concerning a future event. This other event is like another Advent. I wonder if the early followers were thinking, we already waited hundreds of years for the Messiah to come. Now we're waiting again, another Advent, God with us again. And then Pentecost happens. Let's look at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Pentecost, which means the 50th day, um, is uh, I think the origins for me at least have been unclear and I've often thought of Pentecost being Acts 2, the day when the Holy Spirit comes, but it means the 50th day. So the 50th day of what? Um, Now this might seem like a side rabbit trail and it might not work, but it might work. Um, What do you think these three images have in common? A onesie, Chapstick and a Zamboni. Any guesses? Winter. Winter. Oh, I never thought of that one. That's good. <laughs> that's the right answer. No, that's not what I was thinking, but yeah. What? C- Canada? Oh, yeah. Well, the thing that I was thinking of when I put these images up is these are products that are known uh, by their uh, brand name and not the original title of what the thing actually is. For instance, uh, like Zipper or Escalator, these are things that have become so popular because the branding or whatever is so well done, people know it now by the brand name and not the original thing. Onesie was a a phrase coined by Gerber, apparently. Uh, Onesie is not what it was called, it's a full bodysuit. Or Chapstick is not actually the name for it, it's lip balm, but we all, I do anyways, call it Chapstick. Zamboni is just the product name. So, that's what Pentecost is like. (laughs) Did it work? No. Okay, that's okay. It's kind of like that. Um, It's like this idea that it's not what we think it is because the story's been told so many times. We think it's one thing, but it's actually the other thing that goes back a little bit further. Um, Or maybe this is a better analogy. I recently found out, and don't hate me, but I recently found out that Lovers in a Dangerous Time, and recently, like in the last two years, uh, was not composed by the Barenaked Ladies, that uh, Bruce Coburn wrote that song. I know, I know. Well, Pentecost is like the song that is most known by its famous cover. I had a friend, I, told, I confessed this to you, rather, and uh, he's like, that's a sign of a good cover when you remember it by the cover, not the original song. Again, I think Pentecost is kind of like this. We're, we're looking to Pentecost, but the origins are really important. For a first-century Jew, um, it's the 50th day after Passover, an agricultural festival. So what it was is farmers would bring their first sheaf of wheat from the crop and offer it to God as a sign of gratitude. And partly bringing that first fruits, so to, so to speak, uh, bringing that first fruits as a sign of and as a prayer that the rest of the crop would safely be gathered in. And T. Wright says about Pentecost, These festivals awakened echoes of the great story which dominated the long memories of Jewish people, the story of the exodus from Egypt, when God fulfilled his promises to Abraham by rescuing his people. Passover was the time when the lambs were sacrificed, and the Israelites were saved from the avenging angel who slew the firstborns of the Egyptians. Off went the Israelites that very night and passed through the Red Sea into the Sinai desert. Then, 50 days after Passover, they came to Mount Sinai where Moses received the law. Pentecost, the 50th day, isn't, in other words, just about the first fruits, the sheaf, which says the harvest has begun. It's about God giving to his redeemed people the way of life by which they must now carry out his purposes. So Luke, in his writing, is making parallels to... This event, Pentecost, Acts 2, which we're going to read, and the Feast of Weeks, or the festival that the Jewish people uh, practiced. It's about the apostles being filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered to be witnesses, to win converts, to to kind of uh, bring in the harvest, as you will, like the sheaf which is offered to God as the sign of the great harvest to come. There's also uh, ties into the story of Moses. And when the Israelites arrived at Mount Sinai, Moses goes up the mountain and then comes down again with the law. And he writes again, here, Jesus has gone up into heaven in the ascension. And so Luke wants us to understand he is now coming down again, not with a written law carved on tablets of stone, but with the dynamic energy of the law designed to be written on human hearts. So with that, let's read Acts chapter 2, the first uh, let's go 13 verses. Again, pick up your Bibles. There's 13 verses here. It's so a while or you can listen to my beautiful voice. Read the passage. The Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, again, imagine these people gathered in a room waiting for this promised power. They weren't sure what was going to take place, but this is how it's recorded. They were all together. when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? And then it lists the different cultures that were represented there. And then down to verse 11, Both Jews and converts to Judaism, uh, Credents and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues amazed and perplexed they asked one another what does this mean some however made fun of them and said they have had too much wine and then peter gets up and he addresses essentially preaches the gospel and after calls for people to repent to turn from what they're doing and turn toward christ to be baptized to follow in the new way of jesus then there's this radical conversion of 3,000 people, it says. Imagine this group, and imagine, oh, there's about 150 of you 100 here. Imagine 3,000 being added to this small little group. And then, my f- favorite passage, and this is just, a, I think, an occupational hazard, being the pastor of community formation, uh, but I love this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with thought, the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together. Notice that word again. At the beginning, it was a much smaller together. But still, even though the group is growing, God has added new converts to this group. It's still a together. Together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give anyone who had a need. Every day, they continued to meet in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And from here, we launch into the birth of the church. And it just picks up after that. I mean, read the, the book of Acts. It's just this beautiful story of God Working through His Spirit, empowering His church to be the church and to spread the word, and we see in this, and per- perhaps this is one of the more controversial parts, is um, Paul and try to he tries to articulate the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the things that which are going to help this church grow and stay together. And this word, also gifts of the Holy Spirit, I don't think we have to get too uptight about. Uh, really, what the gifts. Uh, word really means is just charisma, which at its root is grace, charis, charisma, it's the gifts of the Holy Spirit, that each person, each follower of Christ has been gifted with the Holy Spirit. And so if you are, this morning, you are here and you are a follower of Christ, or you are leaning, you want to, you desire to follow Christ, you are a charismatic, yes, (laughs) I said it. Uh, So with that in mind, now I can preach. Uh. No, I'm just joking. (laughs) Just joking, just joking. There's three main passages where we get uh, this list of Holy Spirit gifts. Uh, Romans, 1 Corinthians, and Ephesians. I'm going to put them up here, so hopefully it's helpful to see these gifts of the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit empowers the church. Daryl Johnson, I think, does a great job of categorizing them for us. Romans 12, as the, you can put up the next slide there, motivational gifts. So uh, this you could think of as more personality, uh, how God has wired you, what enneagram or spiritual gift, how do you view the world, how do you view each other, the motivational gifts. And then for 1 Corinthians twelve fourteen, probably the more controversial gifts of the Holy Spirit are the gifts of manifestation. So the Holy Spirit coming in power and causing Uh, people to do miraculous things. And then finally, the office gifts. Uh, So there was in Ephesians 4, uh, assigned different jobs or roles within the church to keep it together, to keep it moving forward. So if we look at each of these columns, Romans 12, the motivational gifts, prophecy or truth speaking, serving, teaching, exhortation or encouragement, uh, giving, uh, generosity, leadership uh, or compassion or kindness, if you jump over to the office gifts we have apostles prophets evangelists teachers and shepherds and then the center column the manifestation gifts prophecy serving teaching leadership healing miracles tongues interpretation wisdom knowledge faith and discernment Now there's some movements uh, that have said this is all great but we think that was more for back in the day and not for today. Uh, this, this group is called cessationists. Uh, and cessationism is the belief that once the New Testament was finished, those signs and gifts, uh, referring specifically to 1 Corinthians twelve fourteen, 14, uh, ceased to have function and ended with the conclusion of the apostolic age around 100 AD. Here's a quote from... One of, the, uh, one of the leading cessationist theologians, John MacArthur. He broadly calls all modern visions, revelations, voices from heaven, dreams, speaking in tongues, prophecies, out-of-body experiences, trips to heaven, anointings, miracles, all false, all lies, all deceptions attributed falsely to the Holy Spirit. Now, while, while some of that can be true, I don't know if there are any, and maybe there are strong cessationists here. I don't know if there, was any, there would be anyone here that says, yeah, yeah, I agree with that. That doesn't exist today. Now, obviously, there are offenses and there's abuses, but I think at the core of these gifts, I think they are still active. So maybe, and this is what I struggle with, is not being a cessationist, but being a practical cessationist. I, uh, I believe the gifts to be true. I believe them to be certain, but I don't always walk in that power. I don't always live that out um, and maybe you resonate with that. That you stopped waiting and receiving like the disciples. Or your spiritual curiosity in this matter is is gone. And maybe you need some time with this guy. I don't know if you know who that is, but uh, his name is John Wimber. He is the founder of the Vineyard Church. And he, apart from being incredibly jolly and just... A beautiful man. I, I would want to hang out with that guy and uh, tell him what I want for Christmas. <laughs> he, I loved looking into his life a little bit. I didn't know a lot about John Wimber till this week and read a bit of his stuff, but founder of the Vineyard Church, and if you YouTube John Wimber, you get this gentle, kind, jolly man who just had this amazing spiritual curiosity and that's kind of how the Vineyard Movement started. John Wimber was asking the question, when I read scripture, I see the lists. I see God moving in power. I see the gifts of the Holy Spirit active in the church. Miracles, signs, and wonders. And in my church experience today, that is not my experience. And so John Wimber just simply asked the question, when, when do we get to do that? Where, where's that? What? Why can't we do that? And I, I remember hearing an interview with him and the pastor, he talked at the time, the pastor said, oh, no, no, that's not, we don't do that. And he was really discouraged by that. He's like, no, but I want it today. And he felt this, uh, this passion to pursue the gifts of the Holy Spirit. This is John Wimber's words. We cannot successfully live the Christian life in our own strength. The Father has sent the Holy Spirit to empower us. We are commanded in Scripture to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So the big question is: So what? So what does this mean for today? What does this look like for us today, artisan church? And I would uh, I would first mention, maybe as a bit of a preface, that not everyone is going to experience the radical wow moments. Maybe you'll go through your whole Christian life and never experience a healing or a prophecy, and that's okay. A friend in our neighborhood group, we talked about um, we talked about this, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And, and he talked about, I think it was really helpful, the Holy Spirit like a river. And the river, you can see it in its power and its full thrust coming off of an edge of a cliff into a waterfall. Or you can see it carve out and take out a whole bank of trees and rocks. And there's the power of the river. But then there's also the steady stream, the ongoing chiseling way of the side of the riverbed uh, that works to be just as powerful, but takes time. And maybe you will experience the Holy Spirit in either way. And I would argue, I mentioned prophecy, maybe you'll never experience prophecy. I would argue that preaching is a form of prophecy. And so by coming on a Sunday gathering and hearing the spoken word, the sermon, is a form of prophecy. I don't want to elevate my words to prophetic levels, but there's a sense where I think crafting a sermon is part hard work, and part prophecy where uh, we're hearing God and listening to what he's saying and then speaking that in faith, trusting that he'll do what he does with what he does and how he does it. (laughs) All right. Um, And I like this phrase, thinking about uh, prophecy or thinking about any of the spiritual gifts. It doesn't have to be weird, but it can be, and uh, this English theologian uh, coined this term, naturally supernatural, it can actually be quite practical. And maybe it would help for us to understand two of the primary motives of the Holy Spirit. Is not to get you down or into, uh, onto the ground in submission. Or not to, to coerce you into doing something you don't want to do. But the Holy Spirit's main objective, I think, in reading scripture is mission and unity. And that the Holy Spirit empowers the church for these two things. Or you could look at it this way. The Holy Spirit's work is to add to the church, and then once all this is added, to keep it together, to help keep it together, to help keep the unity together. One experience I'll share really quickly that I had personally, uh, of this sense of joining God in His work. And not just working for God, but joining Him, working with God. Uh, I was on an airplane ride from an airplane ride. Sounds so fun. (laughs) I was on an airplane ride, hands up the whole way, San Francisco to Vancouver. So sweet, it went up and down, and I was all, yeah. No. (laughs) Whee! Um, I lost my train of thought now. Don't laugh at me. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm on the airplane. And I usually like to chat with people on the plane. Not always. I'm not always, like, an extrovert, but I I do enjoy to get to know the person I'm sitting next to, especially if I've never met them before. And um, this one person next to me, I felt especially, uh, uh, I don't know, the urge to strike up conversation. Her name was Erin, and I saw a stuffy hanging out of her backpack. And it was like a kid's stuffy, a stuffed animal, for those of you who don't speak parent. And... uh, (laughs) And I saw it and I just asked her, oh, do you have a kid or a niece or a nephew? And she's like, yeah, yeah, I have two, I have a, a daughter. Okay. And so the whole two-hour ride or whatever it was, ride again, it was so fun. <laughs> <laughs> the whole, the whole two-hour ride, we, the conversation just took off. And I was talking to Erin and soon we're talking about children and life. And she was in Portland and uh, she was a designer and she was, Doing work there. This is about two years ago, we had this conversation, and she just started to open up. And she said that her daughter, who the stuffy was for, was actually a twin uh, who died. Uh, and the way that the other twin died was um, that they, they were still trying to figure it out, but they think that it was foul play on behalf of the child's dad. Came into the room, and the dad is holding a dead child. No one really knows why. The whole court thing, whole big mess. And she's telling the story, and she's still really, really upset. I think the kid was only one year old at the time, and the kid now was two. So it's a year after the whole thing. They're still dealing with uh, the the after effects of this. So she opens up, and she's just, you know, starts saying, like, I don't know what my purpose is in life and, like, all these things. And I just felt this urge to pray for her in my mind as I'm talking with her. And I have never felt it this strongly before, but I just felt like God's love flowing through me at that moment for her so strongly that I could not deny it. I couldn't keep it to myself so much so that I decided that God was in fact telling me or leading me to say something to her. Oh, man, so like, okay, I think I'm going to say something to her. (laughs) First of all, like, sorry, thank you for sharing your story, but then I just... The words that I kept going through my mind were that God loves you, God is with you, and for you. So I said, hey, Aaron, I am a Christian. I believe in God. I believe that he's real. And uh, as you were talking, I was praying. And the words that he was telling me to tell you were that he loves you and that he's with you and that he's for you. And at a moment like that, you kind of hold it out there and you're like, the ride could be over. It was uh, obviously it impacted her and the words just cut right to her soul and she just began to tear up and weep right in the plane there. And from there, again, opened up about past in the church and had totally gone away from God and now felt this connection to God through this moment that we're having on the airplane. And in the airplane, I'm praying with Aaron uh, to uh, come back to God, to return to God, to repent and follow Jesus again. And she's crying. I'm crying. I don't know who can hear us around. And at the end of the flight, we get up and start walking out. And she just was so grateful and so thankful. You could just see a switch turned in her from uh, kind of discouragement to pure joy. And she's trying to figure out ways to thank me. And she takes off her earrings. And she's like, give these to your wife. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm like, yes. And... We exchanged emails, and I kept in touch with her too, and, uh, and she got plugged into a church back in Portland. But that, for me, was a personal experience where I felt like God was empowering me to do His mission. And when we think of the word mission, you can often, you know, make it this big concept that has no relation to everyday life, but all it is is loving people. In the middle of First Corinthians 12 and 14, the trouble passages, is... Nestled right in there so beautifully, First Corinthians 13, the love chapter. These are great. Prophecy, healing, all of this is awesome. But if you do not have love, you have nothing. The purpose is lost. The mission is gone. It's all about God's love for others. The great commission was to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. And surely, Jesus says, I am with you always to the very end of the age. It's the great, and I don't know if I'm messing up the word here, the great co-mission. I love thinking about it that way. It's a mission that we're co-laborers with. We get to do it together with God and with each other. The great co-mission. Instead of working for Him, we get to work with Him and all of the spirit gifts, all of the things that are mentioned by Paul in the New Testament, all the healings and the signs of wonders, they're meant to give glory to God and to point to a loving Father, to make Him known. 1 Corinthians, Paul says this, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. I think there is a time and a place for reason and logic and to understand. And there's also a time for the demonstration of the Spirit's power. Just yesterday I was in Home Depot and I think I'm pretty certain it was because I was preparing this message I felt to pray for this woman who is checking me out, not checking me out but (laughs) I did not mean to say that for the podcast, I did not mean to say that. She may have been. No one knows. <laughs> but uh, she had uh, she'd just returned to work after a year. And she, was, uh, she had cysts all over her body inside her spine and stuff. And I was like, I think I should pray for her in Home Depot. And uh, I didn't. I didn't pray for her. And after that, I was just thinking, well, what, why didn't I? I think mostly because I'd be embarrassed if, you know, she's like, no, gross, get away. I And maybe my, you know, my, I don't know. I just get embarrassed or people would look at me funny. But is that what I'm worried about, my reputation? Is that what it comes to? When I hear God's spirit, it could be or not. The only way to do it is to test it. To be like, hey, can I pray for you? I'm a Christian. I believe that God can heal you. And then try it. And believe that he can. So a bad example. I didn't do it, but I think... uh, I don't know. In the future, what does that look like as we hear those promptings? So mission, I think, is one of the the great uh, motivators of the Holy Spirit and empowering us, but also unity. Again, being pastor of community formation, you're bound to get some kind of message on community. Here it is. Acts chapter 2, like I said, starts and ends with the word together. I loved this morning music. Uh, I loved uh, Kathy and Peter and Matt and uh, Ben and Michelle Getting up here. did not it sound awesome today? So good, so sensitive. And there's something, uh, there's something so beautiful about a group of musicians that are playing together. Each of them individually bring their own gifts. They all bring different pieces to the band. They've all come to Sunday morning differently. Some may be happy, discouraged, sad, or upset, whatever. But there's this, this moment when they come together and just create this beautiful music together. And I just love the metaphor for our community, that we are like the band, that we're better together, that we, we work and we function better together. In, in the passages that I mentioned, in the Holy Spirit gift passages, all of it is talking about we are one body. There's this one section in First Corinthians 12, but God has put the body together, giving great honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, I don't know if you're here, you're suffering this morning. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Prophecy, uh, Paul says we should use prophecy to speak to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. If someone says to you, I have a prophecy, then lays on this heavy word that makes you feel horrible That is not prophecy. Prophecy is so that you are strengthened, encouraged, or comforted. Tongues and the interpretation of tongues. So the church may be edified, not confused, not discouraged. Paul also mentions, if you have a hymn or a word or instruction, revelation, a tongue or interpretation, everything must be done so that the church may be built up. 1 Corinthians 14. And then this passage in Ephesians 4. Be completely humble and gentle. I love that. Be completely humble and gentle. If you feel an urge that the Holy Spirit is prompting you, here's a good way to approach it. Humble and gentle. To the Home Depot lady who's checking you out. You can say, I humbly come. Like, this might not work, or I don't know. I'm just being a messenger and gentle, not shouting, not disturbing the peace. And being patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. I love that. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Basically, this is the four stages of community. And again, this is another thing that I just love to bring up. But M. Scott Pack, a psychologist, talks about the four stages of community. You've heard them before. If you haven't, they're excitement, disillusionment, adjustment, health. Every community, will you will go through these four things. You will be excited. Hey, this is great, the new thing. You will be disillusioned. Hey, this is not so great anymore. And then most people at disillusionment bail, looking for the next excited high. But what I think the Holy Spirit is doing and asking us to do in achieving unity is to press through, to adjust, make adjustments. I love what Peter Legrand says. If you uh, come and be a part of this church community, uh, Experience one major disappointment, then stay around. I love that. Experience, wait until you experience one major disappointment, and then stay around. And then adjust through it, because the goal is health. The goal is unity. I love Eugene Peterson, how he says it in the message. Let's read it here up on the screen. Um, this Ephesians 4 passage. You were all called to travel on the same road and in the same direction, so stay together, both outwardly and inwardly. You have one master, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who rules over all, works through all, and is, in pre- is present in all. Everything you are and think and do is permeated with oneness. But that doesn't mean you should all look and speak and act the same. Out of the generosity of Christ, each of us is given his own gift. We don't have to worry or fret when someone is different than us. We can rejoice. Yes, our body is more diverse. Yes, I get to worship with this person. Or that person who disagrees with me or doesn't see eye to eye. Like the song says, this takes hard work. But when your lover's in a dangerous time, sometimes you're made to feel as if your love's a crime. How many of you feel like that? <laughs> Nothing worth having comes without some kind of fight. Got a kick at the darkness till it bleeds daylight. Bruce Coburn and the Naked Ladies. That's why Jesus constantly talks about forgiveness and reconciliation, that we're supposed to work at this. It's hard work, but we have the Spirit's help. And as we come to the table today, I think it's good for us to recognize this. James K. Smith has this great phrase. He talks about this table as the feast of forgiveness and reconciliation. And this quote by him, he says, In a broken, fragmented world... The church is called to be the first fruits of a new creation by embodying a reconciled community. And the way we begin to learn that is at the communion table. The habits and practices of examination and reconciliation that are part of the Eucharist are like training wheels meant to let us try out forgiveness and reconciliation. And in this respect, the Eucharist is just a macrocosm of what the church is called to be as the new humanity. Church that gathers irrespective of preferences tastes, class, or ethnicity in order to pursue a common good. In conclusion, and as we come to the table, I want to give us an invitation to wait. An invitation to perimeno. And something we don't, I don't do, I'll say it for myself, is wait and receive the Holy Spirit. Like in this passage, I think the invitation can be to not leave, to hang in there, to not bail. And I'm not just talking physically, but mentally, not, not leaving, not checking out, saying this isn't for me, this isn't for today, but, but pursuing that, looking into that. What does that mean for you today? Don't leave, wait and receive. Bonhoeffer, I love this quote. He says that our being Christians today will be limited to two things, prayer and righteous action among people. All Christian th- thinking, speaking, and organizing must be born anew out of this prayer and action. Or, as David yang cho said, the pastor of the biggest church, one of the biggest churches in the world, a uh, church in Korea, South Korea, Yoido Full Gospel Pentecostal Church, when asked about how, how do you achieve such success in your church, right? how are so many people coming to know Jesus? And his wise words were, I pray. And I obey. And that's what we're asked to do here, is to come to wait, not try and human engineer something, not try and hype something up, uh, but simply to wait. But wait expectantly that He is here, that He is real, that He loves us, that He's for us. And an invitation, I think, to move past our practical cessationism to awaken, like John Wimber, our spiritual curiosity. What if this were actually true? What if healings, signs, and wonders could happen in this community, in this city today? Let's remind ourselves as we come to the table why we do so.